Okay. Wow. Good evening. Yay. Hi, family. <laughs> Is this wild or what? You know, I, um, it just struck me this week. I mean, before I was in denial. And it's just struck me this week that, oh, yeah, I'm going to teach Wednesday. Not a problem. And then the next Wednesday. And then the next Wednesday. Well, unless I don't get invited back. But, but it's wild. Um, for those of you who are visiting or I haven't had the pleasure to meet yet, my name is Dave Hall. And um, I have the pleasure to, to teach the, the midweek Bible study. And we're going to continue in the book of Revelation. And, and so, um, but before we jump into that, I, I have a couple images that I want to share with you. This is how I feel. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, in, in a good way, you know, we're, we're filling big shoes. And as we, you know, as we transition, and that's our word. The word for tonight is transition. And as we transition into this new era for Calvary Chapel Running Springs, um, I, I just would... Please pray for all of us, okay? Um, please pray for us on the board, and that would be, let me see, I don't think Chuck is out, Mario's here, uh, let me see, Dan's in downstairs, so we have um, Chuck, Mario, Dan, Luke, Chris, and myself, well, please, please keep all of us in prayer, um, Chuck's here, and, um, and then Pray for the leadership, because uh, everybody that's doing specific things in specific ministries, please pray for the leadership. Um, pray for the entire body, because we're getting kind of juggled, and we're not the only ones. Pray for Jeff and Connie. They're in their own transition, right? And they have a little transition, right? And so, um, you know, it, it's taken six guys to do the work that Jeff was doing, and, and we're all feeling like this. So please, please pray. Next image I want to show you is, as a church body, we need to circle the wagons. Okay, We need to draw tighter together as a family than ever before. If you haven't noticed, we've had a few changes around here. Right? <laughs> it's just, it's huge. And so the, next, the last couple months have been difficult. Change is difficult. Change is hard. It's harder for some than others. Sometimes I like change. Okay? This time, not so much. But um, change is hard. And so during this time of transition, we need to make sure that we, that we love on each other, that we look out for each other, that we're here for one another. Please do this, church family. Please. Um, hang out together. Eat together. You know, there's something spiritual about eating together. Right? And so invite each other to breakfast, brunch, lunch, dinner, supper, dessert, all of the above. Okay? Eat together. Um, most importantly, pray together. Reach out to one another. If you're involved in a ministry, stay with that. Keep doing that. Don't go changing. Alrighty? If you're not involved in a ministry, get involved in a ministry. If you need one, I'll make one up. All right? All right? I have lots of ideas, but uh, we just need folks to do those. So... Please, please, please circle the wagons. 
All right. Amen. Amen. All righty. Um, the scripture that is speaking my heart during this transition time um, is one that Jeff left us with last week. Okay. We talked like he passed on. No, no. He's just down the road. Okay. But, you know, the scripture that he gave us was Je- that Jeremiah 33, 3. And it says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. So that's what we're doing. Um, we're praying. The board continues to seek the Lord, to call on him. We can't wait for him to show us the great and mighty things that he's going to do through all of us. So please join us. Amen? Amen. All right, family. All right. So, oh yeah, book of Revelation. Um, as a review, for those of you who are you're visiting or it's the first time or it was good for me to review. Um, the book of Revelation is the unveiling. It's the consummation of all things. It's, it puts everything in their right, rightful place, right? So, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know what happens at the end, close your eyes and cover your ears, okay? But this is what happens. Israel's in the land, the church is in heaven, lambs on the throne, and Satan's in the lake of fire. Okay? That's what happens at the end, you know? You know, you remember your college textbooks. All the answers were in the back, right? And so that's what happens here. Okay, spoiler alert's over. Um, chapter 1, chapter 1 is John's vision of, of Christ, and the chapter comes with a special promise that, that no other book offers, and it's pretty cool when you read it. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So um, I get a blessing for reading it and talking about it, and you get a blessing for hearing it, and then we all get a blessing for keeping it. All right. So we need to read, hear, and keep. And no other no other book in in the Bible does that, but uh, this one does. Um, this book contains 404 verses that have over 800 allusions to other pieces of Scripture. And so it's kind of cool. I think that's part of the blessing that as we go through this, we're digging through basically the in, the entire Scripture. All right. That's part of the blessing. Uh, the book has its own outline. It's embedded in, in chapter 1, verse starts in verse 19. And so it says, Write the things which thou hast seen, which is the vision of Christ, chapter 1, and the things which are the seven churches, seven letters, seven churches, uh, in chapters 2 and 3, and we're in the middle of those now. And then the last thing is the things that will be hereafter, which uh, follows after the churches in chapters 4 through 22. So um, chapters 4 pretty exciting for us, and then the rest of the time we just kind of watch all right, we just watch from the mezzanine, and, and you'll understand what we mean once we get there. Um, let me see here. The seven churches, uh, they exist in what we call present-day Turkey, all right, Asia Minor. And uh, there's lots of cool reasons why these specific churches were chosen in these seven letters of seven churches. And everything is there for a reason. Everything is perfect. And that's what you're going to see as we go through. Um, each of the letters, each of the seven letters, they, they come with the um, seven design elements. And as you read through them, we've already gone through the first four. Um, each one comes with the name of the church, and it's to the angel or the pastor or messenger of, of that church. And then he says to write. And, and then it's so there's a title of Christ that's chosen. And we're going to notice that there's different titles that are given to each specific churches for each specific reason. It's pretty amazing. There's a commendation, there's concern, or there's both. 
There's an exhortation. There's a promise to the overcomer. And then there's a closing phrase that says, he that hath, hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each of those seven has those. So um, some of them, things are mixed up a little bit, but not too much. But um, those seven elements are, are there. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm a school teacher, my day job. And uh, so I teach eighth grade science. And, and <laughs> today was testing day. You've heard of testing, state testing, right? And so it used to be, you know, pass out the books and pass out the answer sheets and bubble and read the questions and answer. And now it's all done on a computer. And so it's kind of cool until the network goes out. And so <laughs> I, had, I had my 36 eighth graders who were thinking they're going to take a test in science. And they show up, and for two and a half hours, we just made it work, right? So it's like, all right, what can I do? No, 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 no. So it was one of those days. But I'm always looking for ways, um, for tools to learn stuff. And, and I've learned a long time ago that one of the ways that I can learn things and memorize things is, is to make an acronym for it, right? How many use acronyms? Acronyms, you know, you use the first letter of the words, and then you remember that. Sound. So here's an acronym for you. There will be a quiz, so get this, right? So seven churches in order. ESP, like extrasensory perception, right? ESP. TSP, like tablespoon, okay? Or teaspoon, sorry. I'm a science teacher, so <laughs> the L is the leader, okay? All right, so ESP, TSP, and L. So what does the E stand for? What is that? Ephesus, all right, all right. And the S would be? Smyrna, good, okay. And the P would be? Pergamus, all right, about 17 times I, I spelled this wrong, so. Um, and the T would be Thyatira, and the S is Sardis. Oh, that's what we're going to talk about today, good. The P is Philadelphia, and the last one would be? Look at you guys, very nice. All right, so next week we'll see how you do, all right? Okay. Um, so once again, each of those seven are there for a specific way, a specific reason. And, you know, if you look at the picture, it's like a little cir circular postal route. So the way these uh, letters would um, cycle through each other. So everybody got to read everybody else's mail, right? And so, uh, but uh, it, it's just kind of cool, just the way they, they work. Um, so we've already read the first four letters. And so here's a, a Reader's Digest version. So for Ephesus, you know, he, they were told, okay, he knows your works, and he tells that to everybody. He knows your works. He knows that you're working hard. You haven't fainted. You're standing in the truth. But, it's always, not always, but this time there's a but. And you have, to, uh, you have left your first love. They need to remember, repent, and return to the first works based in love. So that's what um, Jesus told the letter, uh, in the letter to the church at Ephesus. second church was Smyrna, and he says he knows your works, the tribulation that they're going through, and their poverty. But he says, you're rich, right? He says, you're putting up with a lot, so just hang in there. Notice there's no corrective exhortation. There's no but. They just need to be faithful and keep up the good work. Do what they're already doing. Church of Pergamos. He knows your works, where you live, even where Satan's seat is. I see you're holding fast to my name. You're not denying the faith. But you have folks that are holding on to the doctrines of both Balaam and the Nicolaitans, both of which Jesus hates. And so he says they need to repent and clean house of bad doctrine. So that's what Pergamos need to do. 
Finally, Thyatira, he knows your works, charity, and service, but they're allowing a false prophetess to encourage idolatry in the body, and they need to repent and clean house of this idolatry. So that's what the church at Thyatira. So tonight we begin with chapter 3 and the letter to Sardis. Um, Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for each and every person in our church family. We ask, God, that you would draw us tighter than ever. We ask that you would give us a vision of what you have for us. Father, just put in our hearts what we can do to make that happen. Father, this evening as we read your word, we ask that you would show each of us where in our lives that we're not being watchful and that you would teach us how to do just that. We invite you here to work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. Chapter 3, book of Revelation, verse 1. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Keeping with the pattern of the uh, seven-letter study that Jeff has been using, we'll be looking at the letters practically, parentally, and prophetically. And so first thing we'll look is practically. Um, About 700 years before this letter was written, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the world. Um, the Greeks, the ancient Greek writers mentioned it as a, a city of renown, and it probably dates back well before 2000 B.C. Um, Sardis was the capital city of what was called the Lydian Empire, right around 1200 B.C. Sardis' strategic location favored business and commerce. In other words, they had roads that were going around them, through them. Uh, they were on the, like, the left-hand side of what was called the Royal Road. Okay, and it went from the far left, where we saw the map in, in what we would know as Turkey, uh, almost, to, uh, almost to China. It was huge. It was like their own Route 66, right? And so it would go from uh, left to right all the way across the country. And this royal road was an ancient highway that was reorganized and rebuilt by the Persian King Darius the Great. And so uh, you know, he made sure that transportation and movement of his troops were very possible, but it also helped with the commerce. Um, Sardis was the place where modern money was born. Um, Gold and silver, they were called Lydian staters, okay? And uh, they were the first coins in the world. Um, In and about the 6th century B.C., and, and, you know, it's interesting, back then, people didn't have pockets. So guess where they kept their money? In their mouth, okay? So they just shoved these things back, whatever. But, uh, yeah, so... That was interesting. I started thinking about, wow, I wonder when pockets showed up. Yeah. 
Now, Sardis was a city known for its softness and its luxury because there was so much commerce. There's lots of money, easy money, and it had a well-deserved reputation for apathy and for immorality. In Sardis, there was a large stately temple, and you can see those huge columns, and they were, uh, they were part of a temple to the mother goddess Cybele. And uh, from the ruins of the temple, the, these main columns are still 60 feet high and more than 6 feet in diameter. They're humongous for the time. And this mother goddess was honored or worshipped with all kinds of sexual immorality and impurity. It was just a nasty place. Okay? Vegas! Oh, did I say? Yeah. Okay. Sardis was situated about a thousand foot or so above this broad valley, and it, it appeared to be impregnable. It was so well protected just by the height of the cliffs that it was built, built on. And the sheer cliffs, they were made of clay, which sometimes suffered erosion uh, due to rain and wind, and then uh, the occasional earthquake would, would open things up every once in a while. But... Um, there were armies that would that would exploit those. And so the, the city of Sardis, the, the, the inhabitants of Sardis, they had this false confidence that was reflected in, in everything that they did. They didn't have a care in the world, they thought. Right? But in 549 B.C., they were besieged by the Persians. Besieged means that people come and, and hang out and kind of starve you out until uh, until you open up and say, come on in. And so um, Croeus was the king of Lydia, and he left the um, one, two, three sides of the city unguarded because he just assumed because of these cliffs were so, were so huge that they were unscalable and that they were perfect protection uh, for the city against, uh, against this army. And so you know, he just said, oh, I just need to protect this, the city from one direction. And so that's all he did. And so um, Cyrus, they were hanging around for a, a couple weeks. So they were 14 days siege. They're getting just watching everything that's going on in there, and they're getting bored, I think. And and so Cyrus says, you know what? I'll give any man a reward who can scale these unscalable cliffs. And one of his soldiers, his name was Hyroeades, 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 um, and he was watching, and he watched this Lydian soldier who was leaning over the wall, and the, the soldier's helmet fell off. And so you could just imagine, you know, he's all, uh-oh, i got to go get it. And so Cyrus's uh, soldier watched this guy go down this back trail and go down and get his helmet and then run back up. And so the, the Cyrus's soldier says, ooh, I see something there, right? And so that night, um, him and a, a Persian party climbed the cliff, and they, they went through the same trail that the soldier took back up, and, and they literally took the city by surprise, okay, just like a thief. Um, the soldiers of Sardis felt so confident that, you know, these natural defenses, the, the, the size of the walls, were going to keep everybody out, and they just felt no need to keep a diligent watch. And so the city was, was easily overcome, easily conquered. And guess what? The Sardians didn't learn. Okay? They didn't learn. History teaches that man learns nothing from history. Right? And what happens was that uh, they, they just, uh, they, they didn't learn their lesson. Um, 
the formidable cliffs, again, proved susceptible to another hazardous climb by Lagoras. He was a, um, he was a general for uh, Antiochus. And so the Sardians were not watchful ever. In 549, they fell to the Persians and then burned by the Ionians, and they surrendered to Alexander, and they were taken by Antigonus, and then they fell to the Seleucids. Okay? And they have a good track record, right? And so... Um, the historian William Ramsey, he wrote that the city of Sardis had become uh, known as a city of failure and that the name became synonymous with pretensions unjustified, promise without performance, uh, appearance without reality, false confidences that heralded ruin, and that they betrayed themselves by a lack of watchfulness and diligence. Okay? And that's exactly what Jesus is going to preach to them in his letter. Right? It all sounded good, but it was pretty hollow. Sardis presently exists only as a small little village in Turkey named Sart, S-A-R-T. Um, I read a, in a variety of commentaries looking as far as, you know, what does Sardis mean? And uh, I found some that wrote that it meant remnant, you know, just a, a piece of what it used to be. Uh, it was also described as a precious stone, and that was the, the most common definition or the most common explanation of Sardis and that uh, it, was, it was found in the breastplate of a high priest that represented the, the tribe of Reuben. So here's Aaron, and if you look in this top right hand, you'll see a little red stone, and that was Sardis, and that represented the tribe of, of Reuben. And it seems that this, this Sardis stone used to be very precious, but then has since become just a common stone. You find it anywhere. It wasn't worth anything. It had a nice name, but it wasn't worth anything. Alrighty? we find that that's exactly what Jesus tells them in his letter. He tells them, you have a name, but it's empty. So let's jump in here. Revelation 3, verse 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So, uh, once again, you know, to the angel, to the pastor, to the messenger of the church, uh, and then the, the title that Jesus gives himself, the seven spirits of God. These seven spirits of God and the seven stars refers to the sevenfold nature that we read uh, about this in, in, um, in chapter 1. Isaiah 11, 2 talks about, you know, it's kind of like the Old Testament definition of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus also has the fullness of the church in his hand. We know that the seven stars represents the churches. We read that in chapter 1 also. Jesus says, I know your works. Okay? Nothing is hidden from him. Jesus knows what's going on, right? Jesus tells to each church, I know your works. He also says to Sardis, he says, I know your works. Um, what a church is and what a church does uh, can be two different things, but it's never hidden from Jesus. Jesus says that you have a name, that you're alive. The word translated name is onoma, and it means a label or being covered by a name. And this is the root that we get from, uh, that's the root that we get our word denomination. And Jesus knew that the church of Sardis had a name that is a reputation of life and vitality. If you looked at it, it looked like it was rocking. You would see signs of life, vitality in the church of Sardis, like the city of Sardis. Everything seemed alive and good. But what does Jesus say? But you are dead. Serious, serious letter coming from the King of Kings. Right? This isn't a report card that I'd like to get. 
So despite the reputation of life, Jesus saw them for what they really were. He says, but you are dead. And this shows that a good reputation is no guarantee of spiritual character. Okay? Despite their good appearance, Jesus saw them for what they really were. Uh, just saying that they were dead indicates no struggle, no fight, no persecution. It wasn't that the church was losing the battle. It had lost the battle. The dead body has lost the battle, and the fight seems over. In this letter, Je- Jesus doesn't encourage the Christians in Sardis to stand strong against persecution or get that false doctrine out of the church, uh, probably because there, there wasn't any significant danger of that happening in Sardis. Um, being, in, being dead, the church in Sardis, it, it seemed to present no significant threat to Satan's domain. And so it wasn't worth attacking. Think about it. Have you ever noticed that the moment you step out and pose a threat, an uh, enemy's going to target you? Ask Julie about this week. All right? And we, we felt it. And so if you're not a threat, no worries. Are you a threat? I kind of like being a threat. All right? Last week, Jeff taught us about the church at Thyatira, and this church represented the age of the medieval Catholicism. And these times were dark, diabolical, and and kind of depressing. Um, Remember, towards the end of the the teaching, Jeff apologized having to teach it to us because it was was such a bummer. And Sardis um, is like that in many ways. Better news in the beginning, but bad ending. Sardis represents the Reformation Age. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Um, This darkness during the age of the medieval Catholicism caused some stirring in the hearts of some really, really good Catholic people. In 1330, a giant of of the faith, his name was John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe. Anybody have a Wycliffe study Bible? That was one of my first Bibles. Um, Wycliffe was born in England. He grew up and he became an Oxford scholar and then he became a Catholic priest. Um, He began to write about the need to move away from church tradition and get back to the Bible. Wow, what a concept, right? He worked to translate the Bible from Latin to English. Wow, that's amazing. Before then, there was the, the English-speaking people didn't have access to the Scriptures. And so that was one of the huge pieces that he did. He also began to publicly question doctrines that included but aren't limited to transubstantiation, which in... Um, the Catholic belief that communion elements literally turn into the body and blood of Christ. He was making so much noise that he was excommunicated by, by the powers at Rome. They said, you know, you're not one of us anymore. Um, although he was safe in Oxford, some of his followers, some of the, the disciples of, of, of Wycliffe, John Huss and Hugh Latimer, they were burned at the stake. So that what was going on. Um, but their deaths sparked just really caused the spark of the Reformation to begin that would burn throughout England. Another important issue that arose during this time period was the invention of the Gutenberg Press. And here's a cool picture of it. I just can't imagine how this thing uh, printed pages and pages and pages at a time. But uh, this generated a whole new technology in, in printing that made books possible. Before that, not so much. They were all handwritten. Um, this advancement, the Gutenberg Press, uh, would be the equivalent to what the Internet has done for us in terms of the spread of information. Um, and 
Although it wasn't the first thing printed, the Gutenberg Bible was printed uh, on the press, and it was printed in 1455. Between the English translation and the availability of the printed Bible, the general population was gaining access to Scripture, and that's what was spreading the word. That was, uh, it was fueling the Reformation. Um, and during this time, it was, you know, the Bible was becoming the source of authority and not the church or the church traditions. And so it was really cool. People would have their hands on Scripture. In 1483, this good-looking guy, his name's Martin Luther, uh, he was born in Elsenben, Germany, and he was, um, he was the son of a coal miner. And his dad says, you know, this boy's not following me into the mine shafts. He says he's going to do something, do something special. And so when he had grown up, Martin enrolled at the university and he studied law. Um, while walking on campus one day, this huge storm came rolling through. And it was unlike, that he, unlike anything that he'd ever seen. And it was just lightning and thunder and rain. And he was scared, right? He was petrified. And so he cried out to the patron saint of coal miners. Okay. And he said, you know what? If you save me, I will become a monk. He was and he did. All right. he, was, he, he got through the storm, and he did. He became a monk. He enrolled in seminary. And after a couple of years, he, he earned a doctorate. And, uh, but the more he studied theology, the more he found that he couldn't ever be righteous. He couldn't be righteous enough to earn God, God's favor. And he made a habit of doing all these things to try to make himself earn God's favor. He'd beat himself. He'd sleep outside in the cold. He'd, you know, go without food and go without drink. And he, he would, whatever he could do to, to, to try to earn God's favor, but to no avail. And he decided to journey to Rome. He says, you know, I need to go talk to the Pope about this. Now, on the way to Rome, he became so sick, he got a real high fever. He ended up in a monastery in the Alpine Mountains. And uh, one of the monks in the monastery, you know, he, he, he was chatting with Martin and he kind of felt that Martin was you know, struggling with things. And so he said, you know what? You should read the book of Habakkuk. And Martin said, okay. And so he took his advice and he opens the book and he came to the fourth verse of the second chapter and he read, the just shall live by faith. And this big light bulb went on above his head, right? He finally understood. He finally got it. He understood that if he was going to be just, it's not because of what he did or who he is. He's going to be just because of his faith in what God has done and who God is. That's what he understood. So he's so excited and he finally makes it to Rome and he wants to go meet with the Pope and tell him what he's learned. And Martin was shocked by the abuses and the hypocrisy that he ran into. And he, he just, he returned to Germany kind of dumbfounded, like, wow, I can't believe this is going on. He says, I got to make a stand. I got to do something different. And so on October 31st, 1517, he took a piece of parchment and he uh, listed 95, 95 theses. And these were things that were challenges to the, to the Pope. And he, he nailed this on the university door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st. And we call that Reformation Day, right? And so Rome got the message and he said, Rome said, hey, retract this or die. And so 
uh, Martin Luther, he took their answer and he burned it. And uh, then at that point, Martin Luther was summoned to Rome. And in 1521, they, they met uh, in this formal assembly. Uh, back then it was called a diet. Okay? It had nothing to do with what you eat. All right? It was called the Diet of Worms. Okay? The diet was the formal assembly, and Worms, actually pronounced Worms, is a city in Germany. Okay? When I was a kid, I lived in Germany. I cracked up every time we'd see the sign. Oh, look, it's Worms. But, so the Diet of Worms was a formal assembly where uh, the Catholic folks got together and you know they knew they had a problem because Martin Luther was just gaining so much popularity. And, uh, but they offered him and they said, you know what, we'll give you a second opportunity to recant. Take that back. You didn't really mean that. And that's when Martin Luther gave his famous quote. He says, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Amen. Right on Martin, right? So, every once in a while, on October 31st, Julie and I watch a movie. It's called Luther. Okay? It came out in 2003. It's a great movie. And uh, it's all about the Reformation. And uh, so, you can check that out. It doesn't even have to be Reformation Day. You can watch it anytime you want. Um, so, Luther's stand gave rise to what's called the Jesuits. And these were a, a, a Catholic group dedicated to enforcing you know, the Pope's power, no matter what the cost. And, and so during this time, Reformation was sweeping across Europe. It was uh, Luther in Germany, Zwingli in, in Switzerland, Knox in, in Scotland. He, they were making all of these inroads, and the Word of God was getting out, and people were understanding more about what Scripture taught. And... Uh, all of this just strengthened the resolve of the Jesuits to, to stand by the Pope and stem what they perceived as heresy. And uh, so the whole idea of the Reformation, it was a bloody, bloody time in church history. But it was also over a time over eight centuries in which groups of people would stand and form into what we would call denominations. All right? And there's over a hundred different denominations and they all have specific beliefs in terms of you know, where they're at and what they believe, what they stand on. And so uh, that, that whole idea of denominations. Alrighty. So how do we get here? Oh yeah, Revelation chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus says, be watchful. Jesus reminds the church at Sardis to be watchful. And we've already heard that historically it's not their strong suit. Is not what they do best. And so Jesus reminded them at their own history that, you know what, this is what happens when you're arrogant and you're resting on false sense of security. Jesus tells them they need to examine and protect and then strengthen what they have. Okay? He says, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, have you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Though the church at Sardis was classified as being dead in the sight of God, it's obvious that there are some things in the church that still had true life. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said anything. Um, the things that which remain tells us that though the spiritual condition of the church of Sardis was bad, it wasn't hopeless. Spiritually, these things which, things which remain could be straight, strengthened. Jesus had not given up on them. And it was late, but not too late, right? Their works were also to be, to be declared to be not perfect or literally not fulfilled. 
That is, that, that the works weren't uh, achieving the full extent of the will of God. Their works were either short in motive or short in execution. And they, would, they were exhorted to serve with their whole heart. It was like they would start things and never finish them. Or they would just, you know, do, do partial, do part of the job. So, you know, they were exhorted to, to work like they were working for the Lord. They were exhorted to get back to basics, go back to the Word of God. Uh, remember the truth that they had heard and received. And so, you know, so many denominations had decided out of that list of a hundred of, of, of things to, to, to pick and to choose and to believe and to not believe. And, and Jesus is saying, go back to the Word of God. Um, we need to follow the whole counsel of God, and, and church, we will continue to follow the whole counsel of God. Jesus said, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will, not, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And, and so Jesus promises that if they refuse to, to heed this exhortation, if they're not going to you know, uh, take advantage of the heads up that they were given, he's going to come upon them like a thief meaning that he's going to come upon them unexpectedly and he's going to bring judgment upon them. And now, you know, you can think through a couple of ways. How is Jesus going to do this? How is he going to come upon them? And, and so I was thinking, it's like, you know, he could come upon them in the sense of bringing immediate judgment. Okay, this is, this is what's happening right now and this is how I'm going to deal with it. Or he could come upon them in the sense of his coming for the church at the rapture of the church. Okay, but used in either sense, it shows that his coming can be sudden and unannounced, kind of like that thief. And so they need to be watchful. Winston Churchill, he said to the British people in the early days of World War II, he says, I must drop one word of caution. For next to cowardice and treachery, overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness is the worst of wartime crimes. Family, we're in a war. Okay? We're in a war. We're in a war against Satan. He's out to destroy us. Uh, during this time of transition of our church family, we need to be watchful. During this time when things are different, when things are new, when things are not as they have been, um, we need to be watchful. We need to be watchful for ourselves. We need to be watchful for our family. We need to be watchful for our church family. The way I see it is, is Satan searching for a crack in that wall, the, a hole in that circle of wagons. And uh, he wants to form a wedge between us. He wants to divide us. He wants to conquer us. And he wants to scatter us. Right? Um, we need to be watchful. That's why I say we need to circle the wagons. Right? Verse 4, he says, You have a few names in Sardis, uh, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. So even among the dead Christians in Sardis, there is a faithful remnant. There is a few there that, that haven't defiled their garments, but there are only a few names. It's interesting if you compare it to Pergamus and Thyatira. There, there were a few bad among the good. In Sardis, there's a few good among the bad. Right? And so uh, the, the, uh, the concentration of, of Christians are, are, are a little low. When Jesus words the words even, he shows that in some ways it was remarkable that there were even a few names still faithful to the Lord. You know, because of just how notorious the city was, uh, its immoral reputation, all the things that were going on, just how nasty it was, even a few names still are faithful to the Lord. And as I thought about that, it's like you could fill in that in Sardis, uh, who have not defiled their garments, you could fill that in with lots of things. It's like you have a few names, even at the movies, right? You've got to be real careful, even at the movies. Uh, you have a few names, even on the Internet, 
who have not defiled their garments. Be careful where you go. Be careful what you see. You have a few names, even watching TV, who have not defiled their garments. Um, Family, make good choices. Make good choices. Don't put yourself uh, in a compromising situation just because those are all the choices that we have in our society, right? If there's no good movies on, don't go to the movies, all right? says, you have a few names even who have not defiled their garments. Why does Jesus refer to defiled garments? Okay. In the heathen worship of the, of the day, the pagan gods could not be approached with dirty clothes. All right. You had to clean yourself up. The analogy can work for us, except for the worship of Jesus. Jesus gives us his pure ones, his white ones. And, uh, and, and so that's what's so special. Then he says, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Of course the garments Jesus gives us are going to be white. Sardis was a church that was dead because of sinful compromise. And they needed to receive and walk in the pure white garments that Jesus gives. At the time, white was also the color that uh, the Romans used to, to celebrate a triumph. And so the white garments speaks of the believer's ultimate triumph in Jesus. Jesus also says, walk with me, right? Walking with Jesus is the greatest reward that Jesus can give us. Um, the Christians in Sardis who forsake that, uh, the sinful city, the compromise of the city, uh, they're going to be rewarded with a closer, more intimate walk. And that's what we get rewarded with uh, when we spend more and more time with the Lord. Uh, this reward that we get to walk with Jesus is ultimately a much better motivator for us than the fear of punishment or of ruin from our sin. Where it says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, that, that whole idea of the term overcomer comes from the Greek nikka, and it means to conquer, prevail, triumph, overcome. And this verb is found 28 times in 24 verses in the New Testament. Uh, this calls attention to the presence of war. We're in a war, guys. War, contests, battles, and conflicts uh, in man's struggle with evil. It's a, it's a battle. It's hard, but it's a battle. Uh, the New Testament clearly teaches us that we're in a, in a conflict. And uh, call it a holy war. Right? Um, and we have specific adversaries. Even after salvation, the conflict still rages in, in, in the life of a Christian. Right? It just doesn't get all easy, easy peasy. So John first... First uh, John 5, 4 through 5, gives us some insight as to who we are as, uh, as the overcomer. So it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Family, we are overcomers. Jesus says, And I will not blot out his name in, from the book of life. Wow, does this mean that someone can lose their salvation? I don't think so. That someone is saved one day and their name is in the book of life another and, and then it gets blotted out? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, it says, we need to see the context here in Revelation 3.5 and this is a focus of assurance. It says, we should not think that the names are being constantly erased and then rewritten. That's not what it's saying. The focus here is on assurance that uh, uh, Jesus doesn't sit in heaven with a busy eraser. That's not what he does. Um, at the same time, we need to carefully consider what the word has to say about the book of life. 
Okay. Um, scripture talks about uh, the book of life in three different places. It says, there is a book of life and it will be opened and referenced on the day of judgment. In other words, the book of life is real and it will be read. Second thing, there's a book of life and it, de- it determines if we go to heaven or hell. So that means the book of life is very important. Third thing, there is a book of life, and knowing our names are written there should bring us great joy. Amen. It says, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is an amazing promise. Uh, It simply makes sense that we should be willing to confess. uh, It it simply makes sense that we should be willing to confess Jesus' name. But it's amazing that he's not ashamed to confess ours. That's the amazing part. Verse 6 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We must all hear what the Holy Spirit says to the church at Sardis. It's really easy to drift into uh, sleepy apathy towards, uh, towards spiritual death, especially when you have a good reputation. It's like, oh yeah, people think I'm on top of things. But uh, that's, that's not the case. Jesus knows our works. And when we place a high value of stabi- on stability, Right? Oh, this guy's got it all together. This lady, she's there. She's got it. Um, but the good news is, is that there's always hope for a dead church because Jesus is an expert at raising the dead. Right? A good way to emerge from a sleepy apathy is to step out, pose a threat to the enemy. You know what it'll do? It'll wake you up. It'll increase your prayer life. It'll help you dive into Scripture and talk to you like it never has before. So, Pose a threat. Be a target. Sardis, Sardis teaches us that we must be aware of our success. And the city was wealthy and knew easy living, but it made them soft and it made them spoiled. And that's what easy living will do. It sounds like America. Right? Sardis also teaches us that we'll be watchful at our strongest points. Sardis thought it was inconquerable, thought it was just protected. Thought it was unconquerable, so it was conquered. And so where we say, I would never do that. I would never go there. You'd never find me with that. Uh, In that exact place, that's what we need to guard against. Sardis is, um, is, is is a nasty city, but with a remnant of a few that hasn't defiled their, their, their garments. And so we need to stay clean. We need to make good choices. We need to be uh, watchful. And we need to be aware of our, of our successes. So the places where we're strong is where we need to watch the most. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this evening. Thanks for your word and just how it anticipates everything we're going to go through here on earth. And help us to sink your word deep in our hearts. We love you, we praise you, and we lift your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me pray over us real quick. All right. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Amen. Have a great week. See you on Sunday.